Hi everyone, I'm Mike Novogratz and this is Next with Nova. Guys, here we're here for another episode of Next with Novo. I've got Rick Doblin. Some people call him the godfather of psychedelics. Some people call him the grandfather of psychedelics. <laughs> hey, I'm not a grandfather yet. <laughs> He's always got a big smile on his face, and I'm not gonna. I'm gonna let him tell you why. But Rick, thanks so much for coming on. Um, Thank you, Mike. Yeah. We were just talking like psychedelics are having its moment. Like this is, it's it's shocking how fast this field has moved or the acceptance has moved in the last five years and but it wasn't always like that so maybe we can start by going back to the beginning you know you at harvard and and give people a little your origin story here okay well the beginning for me really began in 1972 when i was 18 years like old so now i'm 68 so the beginning was half a century ago and i was a draft resistor for um, Vietnam. I, I had never registered for the draft. And at that point, I thought that the uh, government was more efficient than I've realized it really is. So I had a social security number, I had paying taxes, stuff like that. So I just assumed that they would catch me. And I'd been influenced by Martin Luther King and by Tolstoy and Gandhi and um, Thoreau about nonviolent resistance. And so I thought the best way I could resist the Vietnam War was just to. Um, not register, be caught, go to jail, and, and impose costs on the system. You know, I'd also been traumatized second degree by stories of the Holocaust. I was born in 53, Jewish, distant relatives killed, and just the cruelty of humans to other humans was just something that I was um, sort of raised on, those kind of stories, and that I had to do something about it. Um, you know, then also the Cuban Missile Crisis, that was a big issue for me. You know, when you're a little kid, now you get active shooter drills in school, but we would get active drills. The world could blow up and die. Yep. And that, that was kind of terrifying. And but but it was this idea that I was this um, draft resistor expecting to go to jail. My parents, my dad is a doctor. He said they supported what I was doing, but he said, you'll never be able to have a real job because you're going to be a felon. So you won't be able to get licensed as a doctor or lawyer or whatever. And I said, OK, I have to figure out something else to do with my life. I'm not willing to register just for that. But then I, I had grown up under the belief that um, LSD, if you took it six times, you were certifiably insane. That, that was what we were taught in school. And that LSD would hurt your chromosomes and you would have deformed babies. And that, you know, I believed all this propaganda and I, I didn't know better. And so I was scared of psychedelics throughout my um, high school period of time. What, what really changed for me was reading a book that a fellow, a friend of mine gave me in my Russian class. I was studying Russian to learn about the other. And, you know, my parents sent me to Russia in 1970 as a 16 year old kid. And I, you know, met Russian underground kids, stuff like that. But anyway, this guy in my Russian class gave me this book to read and I loved it. And I handed it back to him and I said, this is fantastic. He said, do you realize that part of this book was written under the influence of LSD? And I'm like, that's impossible. It cannot be done. LSD makes you crazy, nothing good can come from it. And he said, no, check it out. It turned out he was right. It was one flew over the cuckoo's nest by Ken <laughs> Right. That's what opened my eyes to psychedelics. If somebody could do something like that under the influence of LSD, then maybe I'd been sold a bill of goods and it wasn't all this terrible thing. Then when I first tried it, I, I had a difficult time with my emotions, difficult time letting go. You know, Back in those days, a uh, standard dose was 250 micrograms. So a major existential ego dissolving kind of an experience. Right now, the dealers have learned that um, 
the doses are about 60 or 70 or 80 micrograms. Right. And you have, you have to take multiple ones to really get to that place. But back at the time you were going for this existential crisis, they're one of my favorite albums. You talked about music a little bit um, from the 60s is by David Crosby. And it's a solo album with everybody who's anybody in the different groups in the 60s. But the title of the album is If I Could Only Remember My Name. <laughs> so that, that, that's where you went to. That was the intention to get, you knew you were high enough when you couldn't remember your name. You know, so I, I had difficult times like, you know, letting go like that. And I went to the guidance counselor at my college, which was again, new college. It was an experimental school in Sarasota, Florida. This is 1972. And my guidance counselor took me seriously. He said, this is important what you're doing, this work with psychedelics. And here's another book to read. And it was Realms of the Human Unconscious, Observations from LSD Research by Stan Groff. Wow. And not only that, but it was 1972. The book wasn't published till 1975. So my guidance counselor knew Stan and had the manuscript copy of the book. And after I read that book, that's what was the key turning point of my life, because he talked about the mystical experience and this idea that um, you could look at it from a scientific point of view, that it was sort of behind all the different religions and it also had therapeutic potential. He talked about birth trauma and regressing to, to you know, stages of birth and he talked about all the psychodynamic things, but it, it had science as the main frame, but the other part of it that I really felt reassured by it, it it was about therapy, that there was this reality testing. It wasn't just about the realms of the human unconscious, the spirituality that you could go on and on. It had a practical aspect of how do we help people um, live more fulfilling lives to get out of depression, alcoholism, substance abuse, things, uh, fear of death. They did work with cancer patients who were dying. It was just this incredible um, collection of things, but it had the political implications of if you feel connected to everything and you know that you're part of everything, everything's part of you, then it's harder to commit genocide. It's harder to dehumanize others. It's harder to trash the environment. So it was more for political reasons. So my origin story in a way is for political reasons uh, that I saw that the value of psychedelics in this kind of experience. Now, it was also at the same time that we were sending people up in space and going to the moon. And some of the astronauts were coming back and saying that they could see the earth from space and that that spiritualized them right. in certain ways that they don't see the borders, they don't see the religions, they don't see the races. We're just one thing hanging in space, this thin, you know, small blue marble kind of thing. And so I felt that this is similar to what the astronauts are saying, the same kind of thing. And it can have this um, spiritual impact to help us get out of this murderous part of our brains that we are so so we have this we have this beautiful revolution going on right with this these new substances man-made and non-made man that are helping people become empathetic connected healed and part of the universe and it ran into a brick wall yeah uh, yeah talk a little bit about that because it's so interesting you know the yeah that that story you told could have been told three years ago or, or three weeks ago at a cocktail party and people are like wow that's awesome but it's a story that from 50 years ago. Yeah, and so I actually woke up to the value of psychedelics right after that brick wall had been erected. And after the US government at the time was more, um, I'd say powerful than it is now. And we were able to impose our foreign policy on all over the world and including our drug war. 
So one of the sad, tragic, most successful exports of America has been the drug war and exporting that all over the world and the suppression of psychedelic research. So I saw the hippies, the idealism of the hippies crashed and burned. I saw the backlash. You know, Nixon talked about how his two, um, John Ehrlichman talked about how the two main enemies of the Nixon White House were the hippies and the civil rights movement. And they couldn't block them directly, but they could criminalize the drugs that they were using and then use that drug war to break yeah. up their meetings, arrest their leaders, stuff like that. Psychedelics so, and heroin, right? Yeah. And so it was this, in a sense, this kind of um, out of despair that, that I woke up after the backlash had happened. And I thought, this is a thin thread that maybe one day can lead to a more peaceful world. So that, you know, I, I, and I wrote to Stan Groff after I read this book again in 1972. And here I was a confused 18 year old and he was MD, PhD at Hopkins. And he, he said that the research was being shut down. He was moving out to California to be scholar in residence at Esalen and that he was giving a workshop that summer in the summer of 72 um, that I could go to. So I hitchhiked across America to go to this. I also um, saw signs of the Rainbow Festival. So I ended up going to the first Rainbow Festival ever in Granby, Colorado, while I was hitchhiking across America. But it was this sense of the hope and the, the summer of love, all these things had crashed and burned. And now, how would we move forward? Nixon is uh, elected, the war, Vietnam War is still going on, he's escalating the war. You know, how are we going to get out of this? So again, it was out of the sense of despair that I thought psychedelics can play a role in helping us have a better world. And I have the sort of responsibility and luxury from my parents who were very progressive. My dad's hero was Saul Alinsky, the community organizer that yep. Obama studied with. So, I, you know, when I went to Russia in the summer of 1970, my parents gave me some Jewish prayer books to bring to the guys in the synagogues because prayer books were illegal at the time. You know, so I, th they said there's big things that are going on in the world and you can't really affect them, but you can do something little. And if you can do something little, you should do it. So I thought, okay, the little I can do is to devote myself to bring back psychedelics. That's, or, or else, you know, we'll blow up the world or- So you, like you, 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 you chose even from giving the prayer books in Russia, but to, to living this life as an advocate of psychedelics to kind of live in the counterculture, to live yeah. off the mainstream and yeah. to live in danger to some degree, right? Yeah. Danger of yeah. cops, danger of, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and I mean, that's a, it's exciting, right? <laughs> you know? How, how, how was that journey? Did you ever feel in danger or was it just? Well, I, I did feel in danger and I had been targeted and I had some close calls, but I felt that this, um, this initial sense when I was a draft resistor. So I, I identified as a counterculture drug using criminal, you know, and I was willing to go to jail for the Vietnam War. So, so I had already sort of made my peace with repression. Right. You know, that if I ended up in jail for, for a good purpose, you know, that, that would not be okay, but that I could live with that. And so, and my, and I felt that my parents would help me uh, whenever I would get out or something to try to reestablish my life. So, I really felt like this counterculture drug using criminal. And I would say that the arc of my life over the last 50 years has to become mainstream instead of counterculture. Um, not a criminal, but legal, but still remaining to be a psychedelic user and a marijuana user. So to keep that thread, but become mainstream and legal. 
And so we're, we're still a ways away from that. It's been a half century moving in that direction. But, but it seems like we're accelerating, right? And so, and you've been a big part of it with maps. Yeah. Uh, talk about the founding of maps and well, why okay. and who. Yeah, so the founding of maps is, is basically linked to the criminalization of MDMA. So I, I dropped out of school when I was 18. So as Leary talked about, you know, um, turn on, uh, tune in, drop out. Um, I did feel that we were, I was personally um, overdeveloped intellectually, underdeveloped emotionally and spiritually. And I felt humanity as a whole is that we have technology that we don't properly manage, you know, climate change and um, incredible weaponry and things like that. So I, I, I went on a 10 year process of kind of get integrated from basically 72 to 82. And I ended up building houses, doing things in the physical world to get grounded while I was still tripping every now and again as a way to try to build myself up to where I'd be ready to put psychedelics first in a formal way. So I went back to college in 1982 and the very first um, semester, Stan Groff was offering a workshop at Esalen, a month long workshop called the Mystical Quest. So I had been out of college for 10 years, new college permits off-campus study. So I went there to Esalen in September of 82 for a, a month long workshop called the Mystical Quest people from different religions. And while I was there, this woman, Debbie Harlow, came by and said that there's a new drug that's used in therapy. It's called Adam. And it's really effective for personal communications, for dealing with couples therapy, for things you, difficult emotions. It makes you a better listener and all this stuff. And I saw a group of people sitting in a circle doing it, talking to each other. And my first thought was, so what, you know, if you can still talk, if you could still remember your name, how profound can it be? <laughs> so I, I like to say that I was um, stupid enough to underestimate it, but smart enough to buy some. <laughs> so, Interesting. Well, so it's funny. I took home and, um, and I did it with my girlfriend and I was shocked at how profound it was and how deep it was. And I realized then that it had incredible therapeutic potential. And while I woke up to LSD after the backlash, I was waking up to this drug before the backlash because it was called Adam in these underground uh, therapy circles, even though it was still legal, but it was also known as ecstasy. It had started to move out of these therapeutic settings into a party setting. This was the time of Nancy Reagan, just say no, and the Reagan yeah. escalation of the drug war. So it was clear that it was going to be criminalized, but because it was legal, we could introduce it to various different people who then could become witnesses to testify about its value once the DEA moved to criminalize it. So we had a multi-year multi head start on the DEA. They knew about ecstasy, but they didn't know about us and they didn't know about the therapeutic use. And I actually met um, a fellow who was Robert Mueller was the Assistant Secretary General of the UN. And he wrote this incredible book called New Genesis, Shaping the Global Spirituality, which had the picture of the earth from space on the cover. And he talked about how from the UN perspective, he was kind of the mystic at the UN. The UN is to mediate conflicts between countries, but a lot of the conflicts are religious based. And he said, we need this perspective that the astronauts had. We need this mystical perspective that we're all in this fragile earth together. And so I, I wrote him a letter and to my utter astonishment, he wrote me back. Cause what I said to him is, I totally believe what you said but you didn't mention anything about psychedelics. And here's all the Good Friday experiment that Timothy Leary and others had done with whether psilocybin could produce a mystical experience. I talked to him about MDMA and I said, will you help us bring back psychedelic research? Because every new way of killing gets unlimited money from the militaries of the world. And if this theory of global spirituality 
is, is solid, then we should be studying spirituality. And he wrote me back and he said, yes, that he would help. He did agree with me. He introduced me to a variety of different mystics from different religions. Of course, I read between the lines and I heard him say, send them MDMA, which I did. And then he sent, they, they would try it in the monasteries and meditation, different ways. And they would write back to him. And so we were planning for this uh, crackdown, which finally came in the summer of 84. And when the DEA moves to criminalize, there's 30 days for a public comment period. So I went to um, Washington in like day 29 and filed for this hearing. We had uh, Andy Weil uh, had a friend of his from Harvard who was a lawyer, Richard Cotton, with a big DC law firm. They took the case pro bono. We, we had all these witnesses. And we ended up uh, winning in the court of public opinion and winning in the court. And in the summer of 85, the DEA freaked out and they emergency scheduled MDMA on very flimsy grounds. And it's the irony here is that they did not have the authority to do that. Congress had given emergency scheduling power to the attorney general, but the attorney general had never subdelegated down to the DEA. So the first move to criminalize MDMA was itself illegal. That's amazing. And, yeah, and so once the um, MDMA was criminalized, um, I re even though we won the case, the judge said it should case schedule three available as a medicine. That's where I realized that the resistance was so strong. The misinformation was so strong that the only way to bring it back was through science, through medicine, through FDA drug development. And I knew that the government was going to pay for it. The pharmaceutical companies weren't going to pay for it. So I started MAPS as a nonprofit um, psychedelic and medical marijuana pharmaceutical company. But I did have one delusion, which was I thought, look at all these millions of people now that are taking psychedelics. If, if each one of them just sends us $10, we'll have all the money we need to do the research. And I finally realized that they would rather buy more drugs with the $10. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting. The law of large number fundraising thing never works. It's, it's, it's got a better chance now with crypto and with the internet. Yeah. But man, oh man, it's tough. You have that, if everyone gives me $1. <laughs> so tell you what's interesting. We've had a... Uh, an, another student of Stan Groff's here in New York who's been working with lots of friends of ours who have gone through trauma. Yes, and yeah. the results are staggering. And yeah. I'm telling you, you know, my wife and I have probably now encouraged 20, 30 people to go through. Uh, yeah. And every single person, not everyone has the complete breakthrough, but every person is getting something out of it. And, yeah. uh, He's probably one of your buddies. He he's getting he more work. He's getting more work than he ever has. He was like, Jesus, you guys are working yeah. me to the bone. Well, but, um, actually, I just sent my son to him. Interesting. You know, who wanted the you know, he didn't want to do it with his father, but but he was willing to do um, MDMA therapy. And so I sent him to the same person, uh, which um, I just spoke. To. It just happened last weekend. And so get, my, get, maybe get help the help the audience uh, understand what MDMA therapy is. And, and why it works, why the somatic release of you know, trauma. And I don't know, maybe you're going to do a much better job than I could. Yeah. So I, I think when we talk about MDMA therapy, the, the emphasis should be on the therapy, not on the MDMA. Because, um, you know, MDMA brings things to the surface. It, it reduces your fear response to a perceived emotional threat. George Greer, who Enrico Greer, who were the first ones to publish ever on MDMA, that was their language that MDMA reduces the fear response to a perceived emotional threat. 
So it can be about self-criticism. You know, if somebody gives me a critical thought, that's an emotional threat to my sense of self. So that's why it's so good for couples therapy, right. because you're, you're a better listener. You want to know what people really have to say, because it, it strengthens your sense of self. It's the sense of self-acceptance. There's a release of oxytocin, which is the hormone of nursing mothers of love and connection. It, uh, it promotes neuroplasticity. This oxytocin release promotes new neural connections in these pro-social areas of the brain. But I'd say the main effect that it does is this self-love, this love for others, this acceptance. You know, technically we could talk about amygdala processing where the part of our brain that processes fear, there's reduced activity in the amygdala. People with PTSD have um, reduced activity in the prefrontal cortex. They're no longer as logical anymore. You know, things are triggering them. They can't separate it out. MDMA has more uh, activity in the prefrontal. So you're more logical, you're less reactive to emotional fears. There's more connectivity, the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that puts things into long-term memory storage. With PTSD, you're, you're never really past the trauma. It's always happening, it's always about to happen, but you can then process it, let out the feelings. So MDMA therapy, many of our people have said, I don't know why they call this ecstasy. So it's not like you take a pill and you know everything's rainbows and butterflies and it's like, it doesn't matter what happened. Actually, there's an incredible documentary called Trip of Compassion. That's an Israeli documentary about three of our Israeli patients. And it's got English subtitles when it's in Hebrew. That would be the best documentary on Vimeo for people to see what is the actual therapeutic process of, with MDMA like, because it's got footage of actual MDMA therapy sessions because we videotape all of them. And sometimes people are just shaking, they're, they're, they're letting it, they're crying. It's like the trauma that when it happened, they, they had to focus on survival. They couldn't really process their emotions. That's the same story about soldiers in a war. You know, you, you can't really let your defenses down or, or really let your emotions take over because you have to be aware to keep yourself alive. But then often people dissociate when they're traumatized. It's not like, it's like they're not really there. And then when you come back, after the trauma is over, you, you have a hard time processing the emotions because they were overwhelming at the same time. So MDMA helps people to take things that were overwhelming and to um, let them go through you. So it's the same as grief. Somebody that you love dies. Sometimes people get stuck in what's called prolonged grief. You know, they can never really move past it. They can never really break down and cry. That that fear of breaking down is that it's endless and you'll go into this pit of despair. And so what we need to do in MDMA therapy is help people feel safe enough so that they could fully express their emotions. Stan Groff has said something really beautiful. He said, the full experience of an emotion is the funeral pyre of that emotion. So if you feel like you're in an ayahuasca trip and you're going to have, you know, you're going to go crazy and you're never going to be back again, you're always going to be in this uh, crazy space or you're gonna be trapped in this pit of despair and you'll never get out of it. The solution, the irony is that you have to accept that. Yeah. And you say, okay, I will never get out of this. This is forever, I accept that. And then it, it changes because everything changes. It's the resistance that keeps you trapped and the acceptance of it is what will make it move on. And the MDMA therapy helps people move from resistance to acceptance and expression. 
we we did a podcast with a woman who went through a process and it's just interesting i said oh my god you're beautiful again right like the emotions <laughs> went she's like thanks <laughs> but like the 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 process which wasn't an easy one uh literally let the trauma go and and it was a whole new lease on life and so it was really wonderful to see we'll send yeah. you a copy oh i'd uh, love to see that because i'll just say one of the people that we work with is bessel van der Kolk, and he wrote the book the body keeps the score what's what's absolutely astonishing he's the principal investigator of our boston site but last week last sunday just a few days ago the body keeps the score was the number one new york times best-selling book and it's been published over six years ago Wow. And what that means is that people are really sensitized now to how behind addiction is trauma, behind PTSD. You know, every behind, ev behind everything is trauma. I, I literally am at my own company. I'm sending people away for trauma healing. Like literally, it's part of the company. I was like, you, you're going here. You, you're going here. That's great. Because you can just see how it bleeds into the, into the culture and everyday life. Yeah. Uh, now, one of the things that I'd like us to do one day is to develop a measure of global trauma, the burden of global trauma, so that Bhutan tried to do this thing about the measure of happiness, and they tried yeah. to compare happiness. national happiness. Yeah, no, I, I, met the, I met the king of Bhutan. He's a lovely, lovely guy. Oh, well, I think if we could do that for trauma, and then over the next decades, as we bring forth psychedelic psychotherapy, and as hopefully people you know, engage in uh, fewer wars and things like that. But, you know, so much of it is out of our control, but it would be really good to have a measure of the burden of trauma in the world and to, to have our goal be net zero trauma. Yeah, it's a great idea. Listen, my, my, one of my buddies was, uh, I was there with, with President Kagame of Rwanda and he was a big psilocybin guy. And he was like, had this great idea. You would do a, a nationwide psilocybin trip. <laughs> Yeah. And we laughed about it. I was like, I actually am dead serious, you know? Yeah, well, he's indicated an interest in having MDMA and psilocybin research take place in Rwanda. Right. And we are interested in doing that. Yeah, they, they uh, certainly had a lot of trauma. Ooh. But it's yeah. interesting. There's communal trauma. There's neighborhood trauma. There's personal trauma. There's generational trauma. Yeah. Uh, we got a lot of work to do. We um, do. Well, one of the people we work with at uh, the Bronx VA is Rachel Yehuda. I love and Rachel. She's fantastic, but she's done work on the epigenetics of multi-generational trauma. So she's now doing MDMA therapy for vets with PTSD, but we're also looking at markers of multi-generational epigenetic trauma and seeing if MDMA therapy or any other kind of therapy, if you get over the trauma, these genetic markers that pass it on to the next generation should change. That's the theory. So... My wife, who has done a lot of homework and, and a lot of practice on this, when she meets people, her thought is always start with MDMA therapy to kind of deal with your trauma and then move into the ego dissolution drugs, if it's psilocybin mm -hmm. or LSD or is that yeah. is that what you'd recommend? Not that you're giving medical research, medical yeah. recommendations. Yeah, well, I, I think so. Uh, for a lot of people, what I try to say is that MDMA in some ways is more gentle even than smoking marijuana because there's a way in which smoking marijuana kind of alters your logical train of thought. I love it for strategizing, for creativity, for things like that. But sometimes it's difficult for people or sometimes it brings up difficult emotions. I mean, sometimes people have had difficult trips in the past. They smoke marijuana and the difficult trips come back. And sometimes people avoid marijuana because they've had difficult trips. But MDMA is more gentle than that. And it's, it's a subtle shift. It's not visual distortions in the same way normally. It's not this ego dissolution. 
but it's this very subtle emotional shift of the self-acceptance, self-love, openness. And if you've got a lot of trauma, it will come out. And so where I was saying about Bessel van der Kolk, you know, the body keeps the score. So much of the trauma is stored in the body. Yep. Different ways. And that's where shaking and pains and things. So I, I do think that um, starting with a more gentle way to give people this sense that what has been overwhelming in the past, that they can work with it and they can process it. And then you can go into more challenging uh, classic psychedelics. And also, you know, in the future, we found also that combinations of LSD and MDMA or psilocybin and MDMA can be tremendously therapeutic and inspirational as well. Yeah, so no, there's going to be a lot of new experiments. Of this 25 odd 30 people that we've been <laughs> ushering through, that second combination has, has been where a lot of breakthroughs are happening, actually. Yeah. Um, pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah just so, to say about that, let me say one thing, is that there's different ways of doing it that I, I kind of prefer the LSD or the psilocybin, the hard, the ego dissolution first, and then a bunch of hours later do the MDMA to help with the softening and the integration. Some people like doing it at the same time or doing the MDMA first, and then you bring in the classic. So they're all valuable in all different ways, but my preference is the hard part first and then the MDMA to soften the integration. The therapeutic candy flip. Um, get a smile out of that. So give us a little context about where we are now. Like MDMA through MAPS has, has moved through the FDA process. You're aware. And when do we think we make progress and, and it becomes, you know, you part of a therapist toolkit and, you know, you, it's paid for by insurance and. Yeah. And we, at the end of 2023, end of uh, beginning of 2024 is when we think that it's both FDA approved, DEA rescheduled, rescheduled in multiple states and. That close. Covered by insurance. Yeah. So. What we've done is, it, so MAPS started in 86. So now this is 36 years. It took us 30 years because of uh, repression, difficulty uh, getting permission for studies, uh, difficulty raising the money. It took us 30 years from 1986 to 2016 to have what's called the end of phase two meeting with FDA. That's where you've done your phase one dose response safety studies. You've done your small pilot studies and you figured out what's your treatment, what's your doses, who's your patient population, what are your measures, you know, how many MDMA sessions, how many prep and integration sessions. So at the end of 2016, we went to the FDA and we said, we want to move to phase three. And those are the studies that are the pivotal studies to prove safety and efficacy to get permission to market as a prescription drug. So through 2017, we negotiated with FDA in what's called a special protocol assessment process where most pharma companies omit it because it's not that unusual or controversial what they're doing and it delays things and they have patent life that they want to protect. But we felt because of psychedelics, we, so we negotiated every aspect of what we need to do to phase three, what the phase three designs are, what the other data that the FDA wants to get. And we got out of that an agreement letter with FDA saying that we, they're legally bound to approve the drug if two phase three studies get statistically significant evidence of efficacy and no new safety problems arise. And, you know, because tens of millions of people have taken MDMA, we have a good sense of the safety profile. So 2018 is we began our first phase three study and we published the results of that um, May 10th, uh, 2021 in Nature Medicine. And the results were outstanding. They were absolutely remarkable, both in safety and in efficacy, statistical significance, one in 10,000 chance that it was random instead of due to the MDMA. The effect size was 2.1, two standard deviations from the norm, better than anything 
that FDA has ever approved. And Science, which is the journal Science and Nature are the top two scientific journals in the world. At the end of each year, Science creates a list of the top 10 scientific breakthroughs in the world. And there's one winner and nine runner-ups, which are not ranked. And so in 2021, our publication in Nature Medicine was considered one of the top 10 scientific breakthroughs of the world Amazing. as the sort of leading edge of the psychedelic medicine coming forward. So well, we have now, it. it was just shocking because in 20 years before, science published this bogus paper funded by the Nationalist on Drug Abuse that claimed that MDMA hurt dopamine and would cause Parkinson's. And the, the editor of science had an editorial saying, that taking MDMA was like playing Russian roulette with your brain, you know, dynamite in your brain. It's this terrible thing. So that it turned out they gave methamphetamine instead of MDMA to these primates. They had to withdraw the paper. It was a big scandal, but they never should have published the paper. But so 20 years later, science is saying that this is the top 10 scientific breakthroughs of the world. So we are now in the midst of our second phase three study. And as of last week, we've accrued 90 out of the 100 people in the second phase three study. So you're almost there. We're almost there. It will be done in, in October of this year. And then it will take a year or so, if the results are good, which so far it seems that they will, to, to work through FDA and DEA review. And so near the end of 2023, we're about a year or so behind in Europe. We're trying to globalize. We do want to bring this to Rwanda, to South Africa, to Armenia. We had six therapists from um, Ukraine that were just about to start our training program, and now they're uh, tragically engaged in the war. So we, we want to bring this to war zones, to things like that. And, and I think that um, we are on the verge of the interim analysis for the second phase three study is going to be in May of this year, in about a month and a half. The study will be done in October, and if the results are good, then we will get approved. It's just a matter of going through the system and figuring out what are the safety concerns or policies that FDA puts into place as to how it should be regulated. Well, that's pretty darn exciting. Uh, it'll be very interesting when, you know, you go to the, you know, the therapist, couples therapist, and they're like, hey, let's, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how fast it just migrates and becomes just kind of, you know, normal. Let me ask you a question because, you know, I know psilocybin's in, in the process of trying to go through. Do you think people at the FDA, so what's happening in cryptocurrency world is it's young people that love crypto that are forcing their organizations into it, right? It's not the CEOs, but it's the people that work for the guys. Like, we've got to pay attention to this. And it's the same thing at the regulatory agencies. If it's the SEC or it's the, uh, it's the young people that are kind of saying, hey, dudes, you're missing the big picture here. And so... Is there any of that going on at, you know, the FDA where the, the young people are like, guys, we're all doing this on the weekends anyway. <laughs> like it's, it's not dangerous. It's safe. It works. It's, is, is it bubbling up or is it really just a scientific grind? Well, I, I think actually to, to say that it was in 1992 that the FDA formally changed the policy of multiple decades of repression of psych psychedelic research and said that they would open up the door to psychedelic research. And that actually happened from the senior leadership, not from the young people. And that's because they had been pressured by the AIDS community that they needed to speed up the review of drugs. They couldn't just focus on the risks. If people were dying of AIDS, ACT UP surrounded the FDA building and shut it down with a right. protest. So 
they developed a branch of the FDA that was called the pilot drug evaluation staff to figure out how to review drugs faster. That was the group that was set up by senior FDA leadership, and they were the ones that opened the door to psychedelic research. Now, some of our main allies is that there's a, a pharmaceutical, he used to be the FDA lawyer. He's working with us pro bono, Peter Barton Hutt. Um, he's at Covington Burling, a big DC law firm. He's in his 80s. Um, we also have uh, Tom Lofren, who used to be the head of psychiatry products at uh, um, FDA. He's in his 70s. He's our main um, advisor on it. So I, I think that the younger people, in a way, are a little bit more bureaucratically nervous at the FDA. That's interesting. You know, they're reluctant to make these decisions. And so we've had times where we thought the FDA was being unreasonable. We spent over a quarter million dollars on lawyers for a formal dispute with FDA about the credentials of the therapist post-approval. And it went up to the senior leadership of FDA and they overruled the younger people at the division. That's so I think what happened is the younger people didn't want, they weren't against what we were doing, but they didn't want to take responsibility for a decision that could be controversial. So they never said no to us, but they never, they, they always said no, but they never explained why they were saying no. They never contradicted what we had to say. They just said no. So when we appealed to the higher levels of the FDA, um, they overruled it. But I would say that what you were pointing to is totally right in the field of psychiatry and psychotherapy. The young psychiatric residents, if they don't hear that their program has something to do with psychedelics, they may go elsewhere. Right. So that's why we have all these schools of psychiatry that are setting up you know, psychedelic research centers. In order to attract the new generation of psychiatrists, they must have something to do with psychedelics. Yeah. And the same is true for psychotherapy and schools of psychotherapy. So in that case, it is the younger people that are um, motivating this change. Well, it, it, it's shocking, even as a 57-year-old you know, New York finance guy, just how much has shifted in five years in terms of people's willingness to talk about it, uh, wanting to explore, people asking me, hey, how do I get signed up? Who, yeah. Where do I find a, a therapist? And so I mean, in some ways, you know, my wife was just out with Michael Pollan, uh, who's working on his next project. And in a lot of ways, it was kind of like psychedelics before Michael Pollan and psychedelics yeah. after. Yeah. Like, yeah. Is, is that how you see it? It's almost like that book changed. It gave yeah. people the, the ability to say, hey, I did this too. Yeah, we, we like to call him the pollinator. <laughs> now, but I'd say that one of the important points of his book was that he was um, Michael Pollan before he did psychedelics. He did psychedelics, he had important experiences, but he was still Michael Pollan after the psychedelics. It wasn't that he felt like he had to drop out and go live on a commune or get divorced or you know, make some fundamental change or go live in a commune in India and, and meditate in a cave or anything. So as compared to the 60s, where you take psychedelics, you drop out of society, you start this counterculture, and then you said, you know, you run into the brick wall, the culture reacts. With Michael Pollan, he was, um, able to demonstrate that you could weave this into your life in society without you having to make all these dramatic drastic changes that you could just use it to deepen and enrich your life also because he was so um, known for his work on food and health and you know that that when he started talking about psychedelics it had that healthy you know organic yeah yeah, yeah. no he came to it so th there was, was a very credible credible messenger yeah, he was fantastic. But there was one other moment, I would say, in time that was around 2003 that was equivalent in some ways to the impact of Michael Pollan's book. 
and that was Peter Jennings. And he did a documentary called Ecstasy Rising. And that was the first documentary ever that had anything positive to say about MDMA. And in fact, it was so positive that the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, the drug czar, and members of Congress contacted the president of ABC. And they said, do not air this. It's too positive. You're promoting Ill illegal drugs. And they wisely refused to do that. But when Peter Jennings put out this documentary, it really was the high watermark of the fears about MDMA neurotoxicity yeah. as they questioned that. So I'd say it was like that shook society about MDMA. That's right after that is when we got permission to start our first study with MDMA for PTSD, which Amazing. had been blocked up till then. And then Michael Pollan's book, I think, is a similar kind of a seismic shift in cultural attitudes. Well, and the next shift will come when the FDA approves MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD, when the yeah. first MDMA-psychedelic-assisted therapy drug becomes a prescription medicine. Yeah, then it's going to roll down. Well, Rick, listen, you have had a an unbelievable journey. It's a purpose-driven life. Yeah. Uh, you're 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 not old yet, but you're getting you know <laughs> towards a finish line, at least the first finish line, yeah. which is exciting to watch and be part of your journey. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your wisdom. Uh, I'm thank sure you. we'll we'll have you back. Uh, Oh, I'd love with to. other developments and um, you know i'm sure we'll see you <laughs> soon oh, there, there's one thing i'd like to add which is just to show uh, how far we've come so you know i know drug development my phd from the kennedy school of government is you know the medical the regulation of the medical use of psychedelics and marijuana but i don't really know about marketing a pharmaceutical drug and nor does the rest of our team you know we know about how to make it through the fda but beyond that so we, we've hired this guy to, from Pharma to help us with the commercialization of MDMA. So this guy worked for a company that had never had a product before. And <laughs> they started thinking that they were gonna get a product. So he was the number two person in their commercialization team. And he built it up to over 150 people. They sold billions and billions of dollars all over the world of their drug. And looking for a new challenge now, He's now starting to, to work with us as our chief operating officer. He was the number two person at Moderna in charge of wow. selling Moderna vaccines all over the world. Amazing. So we have now imported. Now, the, the important thing, several people were not so, were not so um, supportive of when we were um, going to hire him because he's never done psychedelics. But his wife is a therapist. And yesterday or two days ago, he and I were talking. I said, I think it's an advantage that you've never done psychedelics because people will say that you are working with us because of the data, because you believe it works, because it's another similar kind of a breakthrough that, that we need your help. With. I, I was going to tell you to send them my way. <laughs> <laughs> if he's ready, if he's ready. <laughs> yeah, people have to be ready. Well, there was a guy I met, uh, who I'm sure you know as well, who's written an amazing book and he hadn't done psychedelics either. I was like, you wrote a whole book on him, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know? yes. You're talking about the immortality key? Yeah, the immortality key, I, you know. Yeah, Brian Miorescu, yeah. I love Brian. Well, it, it's very similar to Walter Pankey, who did the Good Friday experiment, you know, in 1962 about whether psychedelics could have a, a spiritual impact for people religiously inclined. He, right. he felt that he should not do psilocybin until after the experiment was done. Right. So people wouldn't accuse him of bias. Right. I think with Brian, he's got a similar kind of a thing. Yep. You no, know, we, we were we were together in Uruguay. I loved him. He what a, what a nice guy. Yeah, uh, he's fantastic. Awesome. Well, Rick, great. It's great connecting. I can't, you yeah. know, 
like I said, it's exciting to have you. It's exciting to see your energy. After all these years, you're still just as excited. Uh, oh, it's every day. I, I, I'm like in a perpetual state of amazement. Awesome. You know, of, of who's coming around um, to support this. You know, the VA, I mean, it, it's taken us 31 years of struggle before the VA would give the first uh, person MDMA inside the VA. You and know, it's interesting. When, when, when I was talking to the people in criminal justice, I had had this vision in my mind of this poster with all the people that are pushing that revolution, right? And as you were talking and I was thinking about what an interesting poster of the people from Michael Pollan and Rachel Yehuda and Stan Groff and yourself and like the, 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 the psychedelic army is growing by the day and it just does feel like the ball's rolling downhill now, not uphill. And so it's only going to gain momentum. But like I have this visual of like all the people, uh, forget the recreational side, which people you know have the right to do, I believe. But yeah. the using for spirituality, using for empathy growth, using for creativity, using for trauma. I mean, we've seen it firsthand here, just how many people are processing trauma for the first time in their life and being liberated. And so uh, it's literally one of the most exciting fields in the world right now. And it's, it's awesome that you're at the, at the front of the army. And yeah. so thank you. Yeah. And, and I think that if we look at the, the way gay rights and gay marriage move forward, you know, it's people coming out. It's people saying, you know, you've got this image of uh, people who are gay, but it's not a real, you've got a stereotype, it's not real. So we need the psychedelic coming out. Well, I will tell you that at the University of Iowa, I gave a commencement address three years ago or four years ago before it was cool. And I mentioned psilocybin and ayahuasca <laughs> as therapy tools. Uh, the president of the university looked over at me like I had three heads. <laughs> it might not have been the right university to be talking about psychedelics, but I'm on record. I came out early. <laughs> that's, good. that's good. Yeah. So I think that's what people need is, is people that they respect for one thing, but they might not know that they have psychedelic experiences that have been important to them. And then when they can see that, that will change their minds. The same way that when I read this book by Ken Kesey and I yeah. thought, you know, nothing good can come from LSD. So we need this big coming out. And, and I think this podcast is, is a great, and you're speaking out in public like this is super helpful for that. Awesome. Thanks a ton. Oh, there's my wife. Good to see you. And we'll stay in touch. Okay. See you.